Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. On today's episode, we have Tony. Tony was in the United States Air Force as a cyber operator from 18 to 24. After leaving, he went back into IT in the private sector. Um, he has a degree in history. Um, where was that? So Framingham State University. Framingham. Okay. And then you're looking to do your master's in history, aren't you? Yep. Cool. Um, and you've got yourself... Um, a sort of podcast on YouTube. It's called The Pop Historian, isn't it? Yeah. If you see the symbol with popcorn, that's the right one. If you come across the channel with Red Dead Redemption videos, you've gone too far. <laughs> and you said you were a bit of a um, a hiker in your younger days and a bit of a gardener. Yeah, I hiked, uh, I gardened. I guess you could say I, I was homeschooled when I was younger, like a little mm-hmm. kid up until about sixth or seventh grade. So it was a lot of outdoors times. Um, I remember once a week we would like go to the zoo to the point that I got sick of giraffes because every zoo has giraffes and you can always pet the giraffes or feed the giraffes. And I'm just like, yeah, I get it. They got a perfect tongue. Like, I've seen this too many times, but, uh, yeah, I absolutely, that was my thing is I love to go outside, see the outdoors. Um, we would go on hikes in the different areas back in Massachusetts. Um, a lot of state parks rather than national parks in that area. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we kind of learn about how, because uh, my mom was a bit of a hippie, uh, you learn about the different ways that nature kind of works with each other. Um, when, for example, we even had a board game once that you had to play where uh, you had the different cards and see, you would see how, say, bacteria interacts with leaves and why leaves are important to the ecosystem and all that sort of different stuff. Well, that's that's incredible. I mean... For a homeschooled individual, that still sounds like a, a pretty in-depth education, I have to say. It was it was pretty interesting because my mom did a system called unschooling, which I think for me kind of worked. It's the idea that instead of having set classes like math and literature, you pick a topic. Um, for example, we were doing um, like the American Midwest, you mm-hmm. know, like the Oregon Trail and that sort of stuff. So we read about uh, Prairie, uh, was Little House on the Prairie, and then we did the books on Little House on the Prairie, and then we did the cookbook on Little House on the Prairie. We learned about like the different things that they would do, and you kind of branch out from there. And I think to a degree it was successful, but 
I could tell you that the second I wasn't interested in something, it did. There was no, there was nothing going on about it. So it was just a lot of uh, whatever I was kind of interested in. Um, so in some aspects, like it went above and beyond because you get to have these like really unique experiences. But on the other aspect, um, you kind of go in to certain situations heavily unprepared because you don't have that sort of uh, regimented experience. Hmm. Um, because if you don't, you're not told to sit down and learn this, 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 it's kind of, we'll see you in a learning Texas. Well, that, that's interesting um, because, you know, obviously won't get too much into sort of education systems yeah. and stuff but obviously when you go to a, a a mainstream school there's a there's you have the set lessons and there's that discipline of but that was different for you when you were younger so that sort of leads us into the first bit of asking um yeah what sorts of things you you've, you've touched on it there what sorts of other things did you do in the outdoors when you were younger and was it sort of your mum that got you into doing the outdoor stuff or was it you doing some self-discovery as well it was definitely parent-led i can tell you that much um and that was i know when i was younger especially my parents were self-employed they had a local newspaper that they mm-hmm. managed for a couple of years before dot uh, com kind of took over uh, I remember one thing we did was it was a butterfly experiment. So it was part about learning about how science works and about how nature works. And we had to, we read a book about butterflies. It was a children's book. But it was a book about butterflies, butterfly cycle. Um, and then we would, we went up to uh, one of these state parks and we caught butterfly or we caught uh, caterpillars and then raise them in special kits and then kind of watch them through the whole process. Uh, and we read, I remember we read storybooks about butterflies. It was very butterfly centric. It was about a two month long project. And then we finally, when they were fully grown, you know, we released them back out into the wild. Um, so it was a lot of things like that. And there was a fair amount of, uh, I was involved in middle age, medieval reenactment as well. Uh, if you've ever seen it, what you'll see nowadays is the full heavy metal fighting guys and just full suits of armor going at it and swords. Mm. That is based out of um, a, a much more uh, basic style of reenactment, where instead of real swords, they'll use rattan sticks. And it's uh, based around experiencing the historical side of the Middle Ages. One of the big things that you learn there is kind of like campcraft. Mm. You'd learn like different ways in which people have, you know, start fires or scavenge for food or interact in that sort of way. So it was a lot of, um, it was some like plant identification that you would do. Um, and a lot of it was just hiking and then being like, Hey, what's that? Or, Hey, what's that? Um, so yeah, it was just a lot of walking around. Yeah, but that's, that's excellent. There's a lot of research to suggest, um, of, Certainly in the UK at the moment is the big drive for forest schools for primary school children. Um, yeah. It's it's supposed to be uh, advantageous for you know um, numeracy, literacy, and science development and social skills. Certainly, if you're doing it as part of your primary school group. So, what you're saying there is basically what they're doing um, in forest schools is taking children out teaching them campfire stuff and 
you know, tree identification and stuff. It's very interactive and getting people involved. So if that's how you sort of grew up, then that's, <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> no, I got to say that aspect of it is, I think, really important because it not only allows children to see kind of a different aspect of learning, um, but I found that it's pretty effective because it's interesting. Hmm. That's one of the easiest ways to put it is that if you take 10 kids and you put them out on a trail, they're going to notice things. They're going to say, hey, look at that bird. Or I want to learn more about this river. Hmm. Or, hey, there's a hill over there. I wonder if you know how many sticks I can put in it. Or something like that. It encourages learning on their terms, which is something that I've always found is kind of vital. I think that's one of the reasons why you have like history video games bringing so many people into history. Hmm. You know, I used to play uh, like Rome Total War. I know we had talked previously, you played the same game. Yep. And it's really about that sort of uh, historical aspect. You know, you learn, you know, you don't learn things that are going to be as useful in an actual history class, but you, it, it piques the interest. Hmm. It gets you into geography or it gets you into history or it gets you into military tactics or whatever it is. Yeah. That sort of thing. You want to learn more about it because it's a lesson presented to you in a way that the average person can digest. It's it's applied knowledge. It's it's giving the concept, but also applying that concept at the same time. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. But so that's 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 sort of how you started and when did that sort of peter off? Did you actually go into mainstream high school or did you continue all the way through? Yeah, so I went into school at sixth grade, and I maintained. I was in school up until I graduated high school hmm. at eighteen. Um, and we would still kind of do outdoorsy experiences, but it was mostly relegated like hiking. Yeah, because there was a fair amount of hiking trails around where I was. But um, yeah, not too much beyond that in any sort of uh, educational sense. And. So, you know, bringing it more in line with now, are you still getting out and still doing those sorts of things? No, I got that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I haven't done it nearly as much. I, with this past summer, like, I just moved was one of the big problems. And, you know, still getting settled. But this past summer, I you know, got out the bicycle secondhand from, um, they, they, had a, they had a sale, the government, local government you know they um this is getting way too long with it essentially they had a bunch of bicycles that people left behind mm -hmm. so i got one of those cheap and i took that around a bit because it's a fair amount of biking areas where i'm at in the midwest um and then you know did some light hiking nothing too challenging mm -hmm. uh you know have a dog now that actually needs to get out so a lot more of the dog parks yeah I'm learning a lot about dogs let me just say that. <laughs> so you're using your your pet as your way back out into into nature and, and getting outside again. You know, some people buy running shoes. I bought a dog. Says it all, then, doesn't it? Yeah. And you, you obviously you were saying you're just moving, and you said when we spoke before you you were keen gardener. So you're going to try and get back mm. into being a bit of a green green fingered individual. Oh heck yes! All right, so here's what I'm looking at. Yeah, we got the front yard, local wildflowers. Mm -hmm. Okay, promotes bees. All right, 
most local wildlife diversity. Very cool, very pretty. And depending upon your location in the US, I don't know about the UK, you can actually get special permit that denotes you as a wildlife or as an insect sanctuary, a local insect sanctuary if you plant local wildflowers. Right. right. Side yard. It's going to be a little bit different. We got some trees out there. A little <laughs> bit too much shade. Maybe like a nice rock garden. Yeah. Underneath the trees, because you know you have, you're going to have to uh, mow the rest of that. Mm-hmm. Backyard. Leave it as is. That's for the dogs. But then we got the side, and we got about. I think I measured it. It's about 200 square feet. All right. <laughs> and I'm laying this puppy out. Okay. Anytime I have extra like food waste or whatever, you know, clippings from the potatoes. Toss them out there. You've been doing that for months, all right? You're going to take a bunch of leaves, put them over, let that mulch over until about April, you know, start the seeds up in here in about March. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you already got plans out in your head. You know, I, I've done everything but label out what's going where. Right. So. And is that, is that, is that going to be you going out with some stakes and some lines and and some labels and putting out or just going to oh probably not that detailed because there's not enough space um one thing i want to do but i probably won't do because i'm just going to go easy with it this year is there's a system that used to be used by native americans it's called the three sisters gardening mm-hmm. where you have a piece of corn mm-hmm. in the middle and of course you don't you use more than one piece of corn but this is just to lay it out from when that corn starts to grow, you plant bean at the beanstalk with green beans, whatever. And then around that you plant pumpkins or squash. So the corn grows up, the green beans go around the corn. And then in that space, they can't really be used by anything else. The uh, pumpkins or the squash grows out long ways. Mm. So it covers that area provides a, a good amount of shade and prevents weeds from popping up. Right. See, your knowledge on that is fast passes mine. I have to oh, say. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it was an old technique and the big uh, idea behind it was that they had pretty limited space for, cultiv- cultiv- for cultivation in certain areas. Hmm. So they had to make the most of it. Um, and in some areas, they also add sunflowers to the mix to encourage pollinators to come like bees. Right. So you're, you're, you're going to turn your garden into an insect sanctuary and uh, basically use old techniques to keep the weeds at bay. Yeah. And I think that that's an important thing, especially when you're doing smaller scale gardening, hmm. or smaller scale farming, is that you need to use as more natural techniques. You need to use good companion plants. You need to kind of go into detail of what spices um, keep away what bugs that you don't want to destroy mm. your garden. One of them, for example, is basil, basil and tomatoes. Most people think that the reason you have so much basil in like Italian tomato dishes is because they go well together mm. and it's not. It's because basil kept away insects that ate tomatoes. Right. Okay. And they also go well to good you know, oh, yeah, they also go well together, but you know, um, it's a win-win. My mine's just blown a little bit there, so <laughs> yeah. Um, that's that's obviously you up to present day with with your out with your outdoor stuff, um, and a real in depth knowledge about you know gardening. And I guess if you were 
like look into the future don't know if your plan is to have children or anything like that would would you look to do the same sorts of things that you had when you were growing up teaching those teaching your kids yeah. that yeah i think that'd be uh, i think it'd be a cool experience for any sort of kid to be have that have that opportunity to a point and i think that it's very important to make sure that children have a social element because hmm. that's something that even though i was in you know, summer camps, and even though I did you know, group things with the other homeschool kids, um, homeschool kids get a reputation for being weird for a reason. And a big reason is that you don't have that social element mm. that you might have in public school. Um, when you're kind of at home, you know, most of your day, when you don't have interaction with other kids, you don't learn to interact with other kids in a productive way. And then that kind of carries over as you get older. So you kind of have to learn those skills then as the weird adult who knows too much about stuff. Well, I, I, I certainly found as you get older that the, the, the weird kids tend to be off doing their own thing anyway. So Yeah, yeah we, we, we tend to. Yeah. You tend to, you tend to get – they tend to be doing the, uh, the odd projects that tend to make it big and, and tend to be cool Yeah, as you get older. Cool or just, just bizarre. Well, yeah, that's a matter of perspective, though. Yeah, that's true. So let's let's move on, and let's start talking about your uh, tech use. So, yeah. um, obviously, we, we said in the beginning that you were in the air force and, and you were doing cyber operations. Um, let's just take it back to you before we go to the global bit, and. Um, yeah, so what sort of technology are you using on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, I would say that the biggest thing would be car, computer, um, cell phone. I had a flip phone up until I was about 20 because I don't, didn't want to change and get addicted to a smartphone. And then I changed. I think I got a little bit addicted to a smartphone. Um, so that sort of stuff, uh, big on Reddit. I like the fact that it's kind of set up in a more traditional way where anybody can kind of build their own um, messaging board. Hmm. Uh, and there's a, there's some, there's a lot more uh, kind of oversight to it than other sites that kind of have that similar feel. And that's just because of the kind of audience they want to track. One might be like 4chan hmm. has that same kind of Reddit feel in the sense of uh, the way that it's built, but it's a very different community. And it's not something I uh, <laughs> want to be on. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I, I'd say it's a lot more of that. Um, I use uh, a lot of the streaming services. Don't use cable because cable is the same price as the streaming services. And I think through YouTube TV, you can get cable. I don't know. Um, nothing too crazy. I'd say the, the biggest things is that I go down rabbit holes using the internet. Mm. Um, for example, one of the big resources I use is something called Google Scholar, mm-hmm. where you can put in what you're looking for and then pull uh, scholarly articles and records to kind of read over. Um, and that's sort of much more in-depth, detailed, specialized well, stuff. I mean, that's that's what I was doing earlier on today. I ended up going on Google Scholar, started reading something, and went down a rabbit mm-hmm. hole of searching out references and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah get distracted easily uh so how let's let's go back um in time and talk about how that sort of 
changed throughout your life so as as a young individual um did you sort of have technology as you were growing up or um where did it sort of start yeah i'd say definitely there were a lot of changes made move from homeschool to uh going to actual school um one of them was that i finally got my first gaming console i got the xbox 360 mm. <laughs> um and then that couple of, I kind of guess was a lot more time spent on the computer, a lot more time kind of going down those old, um, those own individual rabbit holes available on the internet. Mm. Um, and it was a lot of uh, kind of experiencing sort of internet culture of the early, of the late aughts, early teens, something like Newgrounds or Armor Games, that kind of flash perspective as a young guy. Um, and so you, I think that I remember seeing a lot more of that and then kind of getting into, I remember trying to get into the hardware kind of scene of it where you learn how to build computers. Um, I had a bunch of friends who built computers. I had one guy who was actually paid to play Starcraft. Really? Um, yeah, it was only like four bucks an hour, but uh, he was technically sponsored for a little bit. <laughs> I think he teaches running now. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, so it was that sort of stuff. It was sort of uh, getting into that kind of gamer nerd culture, hmm. much more so than anything else, uh, and kind of having to jump the hurdles that come with that during that time because things were a lot less user-friendly than they are now. For example, you have, uh, if you're playing video games, you have the Steam Workshop, or if you want to listen to music, you have YouTube, or you can just buy it off of Apple. Um, I mean, if you wanted to back in that day, you would be an online video pirate. Um, you'd go to Pirate Bay, you find the right torrent, um, you set it up in such a way that, you know, there's no way that you're going to face any sort of black backlash from this. And you'd get kind of whatever uh, piece of media you wanted. Mm. So it was a lot less user-friendly because... A, the technology had an advance in that kind of social element. Um, and then B, because the way you're getting it meant that it wasn't going to be friendly if you weren't outright purchasing it. Because mm. I remember we were saying um, in our initial chat is the the, the differences with uh, computer games um, where their user interfaces and, and stuff were being stopped that uh, were stopped supported by the companies and that, mm. that they ended up um people were were carrying it on with still building um you wouldn't call it dlc but um Mod, mods local yeah mods. mods so what what you'll kind of see and i'm just going to speak about the video game spectrum because that's what i know the most about mm -hmm. that's what i'm assuming that any anybody familiar with video games will do is that with uh video games and this has gone back since the beginning of video games there are company sponsored upgrades to it it's called downloadable content dlc and then you have player made content which is often called mods and that can range anything from uh, a complete translation of the game to a very basic little fix that might be annoying to many players but for whatever reason the mod team or the development team is fixing to completely rewriting the game, aspects of the game, using game uh, components or using third-party uh, components to change how the game is played and how it functions all together. 
And what you'll see nowadays is through, say, Epic Games, through Steam, through a lot of these platforms, they have managed to streamline a lot of the, the modding community. So people are still actively making changes to these games. I mean, if you look at anything that allows modding on uh, you know, either one of those platforms, you're going to see a massive community of people that are building and upgrading and changing those things. But it's very easy to get those things nowadays. Mm -hmm. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, you had to be part of a dedicated online forum. You had to understand in what ways the game software works. You had to be able to go in there and make those changes in a way that you just don't have to these days. Hmm. You don't even have to look at the files if you don't want to. You just hit a button. And uh, it just wasn't like that hmm. 10 years ago. So you obviously said as you were growing up, you you started to move into that sort of computer culture and started to learn about the hardware. And so is that sort of what pushed you into going into the Air Force as, as a cyber operator? or? So I was... Originally not going to go in the military. My plan was to go to college, but finally it was January of my senior year. And my mom said, okay, you got two choices. Either you apply to colleges right now or you go in and talk to a recruiter. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to college. So that's why I joined the military. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why I went for cyber operations is I spoke to uh, my grandfather who was in prior some time ago. And he was actively working at the time. And I think he probably still is in computers and suggested I get into it. Hmm. so that's kind of my history oh cool and so in, interestingly obviously how old are you i was 18 at the time of 27 now yeah so yeah we're, we're around the same age so when you were obviously when you were growing up um and doing your homeschooling stuff you you, you technology wasn't really readily available as it is today so yeah um, how have you seen that change when, as you were growing up to now? Um, I guess in what way in my own personal life? Yeah. In your own personal life is yeah, your perspective. It's much more readily accessible. It's yeah. so much, so easy to get, um, even secondhand. I mean, when you were talking about back in 2005, I remember we had one of these big old Apple, uh, computers back when they were still doing that. Mm. And it was one of those big see-through with a color-coded case. Um, and it was one of those things that was supposed to be state-of-the-art, used for specific things. And we kind of had access to it, um, but it wasn't nearly as readily. Uh, I mean, another big thing was that, especially being homeschooled, we had tried to cut out a lot of, um, I don't say necessarily negative influences, but a lot of like that sort of a, technological influence like we didn't have cable for a while at a time when that was your only option mm. um so it really i feel like the rules became more relaxed as i got older mm -hmm. um in part because i was getting older and in part because kind of situations were changing and i mean today you can go out and kind of get whatever technology you want at a moment's whim mm. um so i think that even to compare the technology kind of aspect day to day now versus 15, 20 years ago. Um, 
wouldn't necessarily even be a fair comparison because what's available is so unbelievably different. Hmm. It's interesting you say that it wouldn't be a fair comparison because it's so accessible now. I've had a guest on who was from India and he was saying that we in the, in the West, so in sort of our, uh, our countries, the United States, UK and the Western world uh, have been at the forefront of that technology because obviously, you know, certainly Silicon Valley would have been developing it. Um, so they were lagging behind. So it's interesting that you say that there's a, uh, it's unfair to um, compare it to the technology that we had back then. So just with your perspective, um, how do you feel that that sort of changed? So I would say kind of, I am speaking from my personal perspective because, uh, you know, I wasn't into a lot of the more mainstream things. You know, I was never into Pokemon. I still don't understand it. Um, you know, I never had, you know, the first gaming console I had was when I was 13, 14 years old. Mm. Um, I want to say it was like Gen 5, Gen 6 of gaming consoles. So maybe I'm a little bit biased when I say that, but one thing I would like to point out is that we're at a point now, especially, you know, the past five to 10 years where technology is so ubiquitous in society Mm. that things can change and happen so quickly and progress so quickly. I mean, to the point that, uh, say you want to get one of the Boston dynamic dogs, like that's a thing. You can do that. Hmm. You can get a little one if you want to to carry your water bottle. It's like 2000 bucks. So the kind of technology that we have available now, when it comes to say 3d printing or when it comes to personal companions that are artificial um, or even your access to different things are entirely different than they were 15 to 20 years ago. Mm. Nowadays, technology is mainstream. It's not something that only exists within the business world or only exists if you're a nerd. It's it's something you live with every day. I mm. mean, you know, there are people out there making more money than I ever will uh, from TikTok. Yeah. Or YouTube or some some sort of platform like that. Yeah, and just from doing um, whatever they can, that is accessible. So I think to, at least in my opinion, to compare today to 2005 would not be fair because back in 2005, you could much more easily compare it to 1990 and say, well, we've seen the technology progress in pretty linear fashion. Hmm. Um, We've had a few, you know, we've had some pretty major jumps and bounds. You know, uh, cell phones are one big thing that became much more commonplace. But nowadays, it's to the point that, I mean, in my opinion, that the technological differences, if you were to take somebody from now and put them back to 2005, they wouldn't be able to, I guess, function in the same way if they've been living, you know, if they were born in 2000. Hmm it's a level of reliance on having that piece of technology with you. Yeah. Um, so one of the other projects that I've got on the go is, is a set of activity cards. And in, in that is, um, one of the questions are, um, when was the last time 
you research something without using your phone. And, you know, you mm. ask someone of this day and age or someone that was born in, in the noughties, um, they, they would, they, they've never had to sort of think, oh, we need to go to the library to research that, get a book out or something. Mm. So, yeah, it's just interesting. That's why I, um, that's why I asked you because, you know, obviously where we are in the world and, and um, we have that access to that, that technology readily available. Um, and, and a lot of it is based around our, our culture and we need to have that phone or something along those lines. So it's interesting. Um, what sort of um, effects has, has it had on you um, as you've grown up your technology usage that you've had? Um, I mean, I guess you can almost say that technology, especially when it comes to electronics, has just been more of an extension of, uh, I guess, tools that I've used hmm. rather than anything else. Um, you know, I'm never going to give a name to a Roomba. Um, <clears throat> I'm never going to, you know, get out here and slap a bunch of stickers on my computer. It's, it's a tool hmm. for me. And that's kind of how we view it. It's a very useful tool, but you kind of have to remind yourself that this isn't anything else. You know, yeah. it's, it's not a companion, it's not a friend, it's not um, something that you need to be sitting at constantly. Even though I do that sometimes, you know, take a day off, play some video games. Um, <clears throat> but it's important to kind of, for me at least, to remind myself that, and it's not even a conscious reminder at this point, uh, that this is just another thing rather than some being vital somehow or being a uh, piece for connection. Hmm. Yeah. Cause so you, you have, you, you sort of set your own boundaries because you know, in your head that it is just a tool. It's not the, the be all or lend or it's not this panacea that's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it, you need to learn to be comfortable without electronics. Hmm. And I know you keep saying technology, but I that in the average person's life is one of four or five different electronic pieces. Yeah. Um, you need to learn to be comfortable going without it because this is something that people haven't had access to before 2004. Yeah. You know? uh, I don't know if we discussed it, but um, have you ever heard the phrase nomophobia? No. So this was a term coined by the post office in the UK in a, in a paper. That, um, and it, it's basically the phobia of not having your mobile phone with you. I believe it. Hmm. So, and, and yeah. genuinely have anxiety based around not having their mobile device with them. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that's definitely something that I've been able to see. Um, one of the things that kind of bothers me every now and then is when I know an area and I'm like, Oh yeah, it's like, going to be like right here. And somebody has to be like, well, let's just look to see if it's the fastest route. And I'm like, it's going to be 15 minutes either way. Hmm. It's either 10 minutes or it's 15 minutes. I don't think it's a big deal. You know, I, I think that there's a massive over-reliance on personal electronics being the smartest, the best, the fastest. And in some cases that is true, but in other cases you need to sometimes just for your own sake, your own mental kind of uh feelings to just sit down and go if it is it is and if it isn't it isn't mm -hmm. you know you need to just kind of accept that not everything needs to be dictated 
um, according to a program that somebody else wrote. I was reading a paper earlier on today, and it was saying um, that, you know, we're, we're a race that likes to develop and um, invent devices that save save us time. But the more time mm. that we save, the less time we have. That's uh, that was a quote from the from the thing. Um, and so you sort of sit there and, and you do wonder sometimes the more that we try and save time, the more time that we don't have. It was like if you talk to someone and say, how are you? Oh, I'm really busy, you know. Uh, and it just goes down that rabbit hole. Um, so, you know, we, we start, we've been talking about it. How do you, your personal opinion, or your personal perspective, um, how do you think it's changing modern day culture and society? How do we, how are we moving forward with it? So I think the biggest thing that we need to focus on comes to any sort of new technological development is not whether or not the development is good or evil, because I feel like so often that's the case. It's, um, you know, we could argue whether or not mobile phones are good or evil. You know, people are attached to them, people are addicted to them. Yes, we know this, we're able to see it in our everyday lives. I think everybody can know that, know that one person in their life who has the fear of going anywhere without their mobile phone. Mm. Um, but we need to look at how they're being used. Are they being used in a good or bad way? Technology isn't good or evil. Technology mm. may have effects that ripple throughout society, which are good or evil. Um, and those need to be addressed. But more importantly, we need to talk about how they're being used. Mm. Are mobile phones, uh, I, don't, I don't really know about the bad examples of mobile phones. Um, you know, you could talk about how rockets, you know, when rockets were created. Are rockets good or are they evil? Hmm. I mean, I don't, you can't really give me an answer to that. I can give you examples where rockets were used for good. Rockets were used for good, putting people to the moon. Rockets were used for bad reasons when they made nuclear missiles. You know? Yeah. Um, or we could say, uh, use, let, let's use that Boston Dynamics robot dog that I mentioned. Um, let me give you three examples. The first one is a team using it to look through um, look for survivors in a broken building a destroyed mm. building that's a good that's good usage you know i think everybody can say yeah that's good i think a bad usage would be the military strapping a gun to its back and sending it off to war i think that's a bad usage um and then you can kind of look at neutral usages you have a youtuber named uh, michael reeds who programmed a dog a boston dynamics robot dog to to pee beer into a cup i think that's a neutral usage and I think that you really need to, I think that the big question now isn't what we create, it's how it's being utilized. Mm. Um, because you can use whatever form of technology for evil. You can use whatever form of technology for good. Or you can train a bunch of robot dogs to pee and beer and do TikTok dances. And that's not really helping anybody, but it's not really hurting anybody. Yeah. So I think that we need to, we need to develop that fine line of uh, how things are going to be utilized. Because we have all these great technologies, we have some pretty amazing things, um, but we just need to figure out moving forward, both as a society and as individuals, how they're being used. And I, I think that that's one of the the most. Um, I think that's probably one of the best answers I've I've had for for that 
because oh, you. you know um you're right that it's a spectrum you've got a you've got the, the the good end you've got the bad end and you've got the neutral end you know this technology is being used for a dog being into a being beer into a cup you know or you know that the german scientist that developed the the rocket said um it hit it hit the, um it did it, it worked london it, yeah it worked perfectly shame yeah. it hit the wrong target because obviously he was aiming for the moon and he was aiming for mars wasn't he yeah well and that's it the first head of nasa was the same guy that developed rockets to you know bomb london and had no problem using slave labor with the nazis you know good and evil yep um so i think i think that's that's an excellent an excellent perspective on it um and thinking that you know at the end of the day it you have to draw a line and you have to say where this is good and where it's where it's bad you know um and sort of is watching tiktok for hours and hours a day a good thing or a bad thing um mm-hmm. and then it depends on the person's perspective and whether or not it's affecting them in 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 a bad way or in a good way you know yeah you know um using social media that the research has shown that it is a detrimental thing if you're a passive user but if you're an active user putting out content and and getting people interactive they've been used it's been used for a lot of different communities to mm-hmm. to come together you know and i actually just kind of jumping off of that mm-hmm. i'd say that would be one of the big things that modern technology modern consumer electronics have done is they've allowed for a spread of information that has never existed prior i think i was reading somewhere it was every day we create more information that had been created um in all of human existence before 2010 or some insane number like that and the reality is that that's true i mean people are constantly talking to each other about all sorts of different things people mm. are setting all sorts of information to be recorded saved, and that can be used again for really good reasons i know uh tiktok dances are being used by psychiatrists and therapists to kind of get information out there about healthy boundaries and about kind of understanding your own body and yourself. Mm. Um, I think it's a little bit weird when, you know, a 35 year old person with no history on this, uh, who's just like a doctor when it comes to psychiatry is doing a, a TikTok dance originally sponsored by a 16 year old, but I mean, it's effective and it's a good source. Um, mm. But then you also have TikTokers who will spend hours creating videos um, shilling their latest product that does nothing that they claim you know is supposed to do all these amazing things spreading this amount of misinformation so again it's good or evil and then mm. robot dogs doing tiktok dances neutral yeah um you obviously you've been saying that um there's so much more information now that than there ever was and it's all at a click of a button um you know there's um, there's a YouTuber, I can't remember his name, but he's a doctor, and he says it's not the person that can remember the most facts, it's the person that can look it up the quickest. And the people that put these videos out on the biggest, like YouTube being the biggest suppository of um, tutorials, basically, um, you know, you you go 
through that and you're immortalized because at the end of the day, as long as they don't turn that server off, all that information is still there. And if this person was to die or something along those lines, those videos are still there. So you, um, it, it's almost like you've got to a point in human history that now you're immortalized because if you put that content out and it's never removed, it's it's there forever, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's actually really crazy to say that is because when kind of looking at internet culture, um, A, there's a bunch of different internet cultures. So that's the first thing we understand. But when you look at, say, early aughts, internet culture of like the incoming sort of stuff, uh, one of the people who some argue is the most... Um, they've been able to keep the most information about his life. He's the most, not reviewed, but the most uh, kind of recorded person in all of human history is a guy known as Chris Chan, who has just had, I wouldn't advise looking this guy up other than just from like a, a, a simple kind of search because it gets pretty weird in a lot of ways. Um, his entire life from like when he was a little kid up until now has been recorded mm. most often by himself um there are constant records of this guy throughout his whole life and it's still like an ongoing you know quote-unquote saga i mean it's to the point that there is a youtube channel that has i think 52 episodes out right now each one an hour to two and a half hours just covering this man's life well it they transitioned so now it's a her um but this individual's life and it's just insane because this isn't something that has happened to anyone else really, I guess, throughout human history. And you're kind of seeing that now if, with, for example, um, you know, Facebook pages for kids, or mm. you can see it now with child influencers. One of the big ones is Brian's toy reviews. Um, just make something like $50 million a year, 10 years old. Uh, these are people who, from a very young age, are being recorded, who uh, have their lives kept, um, you know, posts are being made, all these different sorts of records and achievements are being made. And in a lot of ways, I think that this will be kind of memorials in the future, a sort of mm -hmm. a, a new way that our culture, or at least some cultures, will kind of remember people as going back to these Um and you can see instances of individuals who were influential creators passing. One of them was a guy called Total Biscuit. Uh, he was a British gameplay YouTuber mm -hmm. who passed away several years ago due to cancer. And uh, there are still active communities kind of talking about his work. And it's just kind of crazy to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts <laughs> just to, just to sort of think about that and 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 how yeah people are still talking about this person and you know if if he wasn't a YouTuber then he would have just been remembered by his close family and and, and that sort of thing. It's yeah, it's quite amazing to to think about how the use of digital media has completely revolutionized the way that we interact with each other and the way mm -hmm. that we, we remember each other as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's, there's different 
cultural areas and social norms when texting versus talking uh, Skype versus, um, you know, if you were chatting with somebody on Facebook or even TikTok, there's different emojis you use. There's different um, slang that you use depending on who you're talking to. And if you use the wrong slang, people can kind of tell, oh, you're not from around here. You don't really know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> a funny example of that is a, uh, a punk band known as the Tramp Stamps. They are, and I'm not going to go too much into the detail of their whole big thing, but they're like this new punk rock band began last year. Mm -hmm. And they were essentially bullied off of Tumblr. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I kind of agree with it when you go into the details of it. Um, but uh, these were essentially prior professional musicians who huh. chose to go into punk with uh, some fair amount of backing from big media and they were playing like they were the small indie band um mm. but it was because they kept being asked like these weird in jokes by tumblr users and then they had their own emoji that they did it was like an ant and a big old peach and a bug ass and i don't mm. even know what that means but it was effective it was very effective in kicking people off mm. um but you have all that sort of kind of slang pop up in different ways. You have all these different subgroups and subcultures that have grown out of um, different it's internet sites. And it's almost like, sorry. Oh, no, on. go on, go on. I, I, was, I was about to say, it's almost like you have a different sort of tribalism now where if, if you go onto one of these sites and you don't know the lingo, this is what I'm getting from what you were saying is that um, if you don't know the lingo, you're sort of like, who are you? Do you actually know what this is? Mm -hmm. or do you belong here? You know, that sort yeah. of thing. And the crazy part is you'll see it happening in all sorts of different um, amounts. One example might be Reddit. Reddit has all these different subreddits. One of them that I had heard about was uh, bonsai trees. And apparently the bonsai tree community is very aggressive towards newcomers and they don't like newcomers. Right. Which is just one of the most bizarre things that you'd never expect. But apparently if, if you don't know the lingo, they will kick you off. They will ban you from even viewing bonsais, <clears throat> you know, and it's, it's that sort of thing is you have these subgroups of people that either are very accepting, um, mm even if they're like flat earthers, flat earthers are apparently notoriously kind to newcomers. Um, and then you have people who essentially have their space and this is my space and you're not yeah. allowed in here. You know, it's this bizarre form of elitism that exists in just crazy spaces. Mm. And it's, I don't know if it's because these are people who have, are finally part of an in-group I don't know if it's because these are people who, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it, it is amazing to think that, um, you know, you look back in history and you, you have that sort of tribalistic manner and then you cut and then all, all that's happened is, is the human psyche has trans, uh, translated it onto the internet. Um, I think that's exactly what it is. Hmm. So, but, um, right. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've covered some fantastic topics there. Um, 
I think we'll just we'll, we'll park it there because I All think right. we could be going on for hours for that. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, we certainly did in our in our initial <laughs> initial <laughs> chat. <laughs> we ended up putting the world to rights. So, um, obviously, you've heard some of the podcasts. So, at the end of the podcast, um, I asked the ambiguous question of if you could live off grid for a year anywhere in the world, uh, where would it be? What would you do? You wouldn't have to worry about money and you wouldn't have to worry about your job or time. You can just walk back into that. I think that's been my dream for like the past five years. It's mm. just going so like I was just telling my wife the other day, I'm like, because we live out in Nebraska and I'm like, why don't we just like, get like 20 acres, get some sheep, get like a pond duck. Are you kidding me? That'd be amazing. Like I would, I, I could tell you, I wouldn't live off grid. That's the first thing. That's mm. the first thing. Second thing, maybe Colorado. Colorado's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful area. You can't beat it. Um, you know, it's close enough to the urban areas, semi-off-grid, you know. Um, and I would I would kind of just, you know, do my own things that I'm interested in. You know, I've always thought about raising pigeons as a food source because that's a weird thing to do and it's always attracting me. Um, bees, I get some bees, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, I continue focusing on my history stuff. And I would be doing that on all my off time is I would just go to whatever source that has internet. I download a bunch of uh, papers, kind of read through them over the week and be like, here's my result. Hmm. You know? Fair enough. I mean, that, that, that was, um, that's certainly not off grid, but no. you know, <laughs> if I was going to go completely off grid, I don't know, probably like Argentina, I'd probably go to the Patagonia live up there for like a year, become like a rancher, farmhand, yeah. and just like be a cowboy. I think that'd be cool. Oh, that's, that's awesome. No, I was quite happy with your first answer. It was just that, um, I haven't, I haven't had someone turn around and say, no, I wouldn't be off grid, uh, for a while. So <sighs> off grid too long. It's, it's not fun. Then you're just like pooping in a bucket and it's weird. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right, perfect. Thanks very much for coming on. And obviously, um, your podcast is the Pop Historian. The Pop Historian, you can find it on YouTube. Um, that's the only place I have them right now. They're about 15 minutes long. Uh, the two I have open right now is one about the history of raccoons as a food source in the United States and why we stopped eating raccoon. Uh, and then the second one is about the history of the Space Force uh, because it's not something that was made by just a comment. It's something people have been talking about for 20 years. Mm. Um, I'll be coming out with more. The two big ones that I'm working on right now is a history of writing and the different pieces of writing. And I'm actually trying to get in touch with some um, papyrus experts over at Michigan State University. Uh, Fantastic. The largest collection of papyrus in North America, about 10,000 pieces. And yeah. um, I'm doing one about the history of video games and Mortal Kombat and kind of where we're at now with video games in regards to... Uh, are they considered an art? Spoiler alert, they're considered art. Um, and, uh, you know, how are people kind of holding on to them? What kind of museums are there? Um, you know, I actually pull some of my sources from the Library of Congress. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a, an hour long. It's got to be the most boring thing I've ever seen after. <laughs> um, this guy just is up there talking about how he preserves video games for storage. And it's so boring. It's so boring. He is a bad presenter, but it was interesting in the sense that I learned a lot from it. Yeah. 
Oh, of course. You got you got to be the right presenter if you're going to present something dry yeah. and, and boring. Let me tell you, this guy, this guy was made who's made for the job. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thanks very much. All right, thank you so much for having me on, and I'd love to be on again. Uh, I hope you have a good week. Yeah, you too. Big thank you again for Tony for joining us on the Unplugged Debate. Next time we have Daniel from Montreal and he is a musician giving his perspective on the Unplugged Debate. So until then, thanks for listening.